time for the War Drums of Makua, the season of battle. Sponsored by South Pacific Health, Savage Music Studios, and Life Extend Unlimited. The definition of slavery is a condition in which one human being was owned by another. A slave was considered by law as property or chattel and was deprived of most rights ordinarily held by free persons. These are objects of the law, not its subjects. In other words, you have to submit to the law, but you can't author the law. A slave always has less rights than the owner. They have no one to stand up for them in court, or in the case of Polynesians and American Indians, they cannot have representation in the government that owns them. In political science, they call this the socially dead. Their rights to participate in political decision-making and other social activities are fewer than those enjoyed by their owners. The product of slave labor can be claimed by someone else, like land resources, i.e. sugar or cotton, and the land itself, again, something that Polynesian and American Indians have a hard time with. It's outside our mindset. A slave is an enemy that an economy is based on has a future of turmoil, distrust, and destruction on both sides because the battle hasn't finished. Those drums beat on within the blood of those that are silenced or enslaved. In the next episode, I'll speak a little bit about the Samoan war chant, the Ailao, which is the exhibition of actions used to kill with the Nifo'oti, the Samoan war club. There are several weapons that are used in Polynesian battle and all require brute strength and a conscientiousness about the fragility of life. A Polynesian battlefield was no place for the weak. It is only after the battle that there is time to reflect on whose blood was spilled and why. And then comes the reconciliation, the ho'oponopono, in order to have closure for what occurs between men and tribal blood. The devastation to the people, especially today, has to do with not only the number of collateral damage, but to how the community's lands and resources are divided up. Most people will agree that war has to do with what the area resources are worth after everything is said and done and how it affects the rights of the people who live there. I'm by no means saying the Polynesians had no civil war because they did, and it was brutal. The lives lost to a better strategy and weapons was devastating to those tribes that lost, but they were never punished for long periods of time by that civil war. As a matter of fact, in Polynesia, you could not rule unless, after you won your battle, you took care of those that you conquered. And not only did you take care of them, you allowed them a voice in the decisions that were made. The government forgave. The principle of Ho'oponopono was a principle and cornerstone of uniting those that were in conflict and you could not rule with the respect of the Ali's without that principle. Kamehameha was very efficient in battle, killed hundreds of tribesmen, 
But when all was said and done, the reason he became king was he showed not only mental acuity, but great mana in his Ho'oponopono by uniting all the kingdoms after he conquered them. He didn't just take them, he earned their respect. He did not take what wasn't his. He gave all a voice and kept them intact with culture, tradition, and community strength. The Scottish author and poet Robert Louis Stevenson moved to Western Samoa in 1889 in search of a warmer climate and settled on the main island of Upolu in Vailima. Stevenson learned to speak Samoan and was awarded the title Tusitala, the writer of books. He would often go to the summit of a calderan peak called Mount Vaea to write, where you can see the curvature of the ocean before you. He and his wife had no intentions on staying in Samoa, but eventually both fell in love with the island and its people. At one point, Stevenson wrote to a friend about the Polynesians and said, quote, they are the most barbaric people I have ever met, unquote. After watching a skirmish between tribes and their fighting technique and weapons, he called us barbarians, but became one of us in the fight for our own freedom against Germany, Britain, and the United States. He stood with the people when the island faced its first imperialist aggression during the Conference of Berlin in 1889, where Germany, Britain, and the U.S. decided to divide up the sovereign nation between themselves like thieves tugging at the estate of a Victorian corpse. Robert Louis Stevenson said, quote, It was the most dismally stupid production of modern diplomacy, end quote, because in his opinion, the terms of the settlement and the presence of merchants, not statesmen, was only to exploit Samoan resources. These civilized nations cared nothing for the people, but only for the value that they could sell their land and resources for. Stevenson had backed a chieftain to defend the country's interests against Germany. The chieftain lost, and he and his men were imprisoned by the Germans. Stevenson provided for that clan's family during the time that the Samoan Congress were isolated and imprisoned for the civilized protest. In gratitude to Stevenson for providing for their families, they built on the Stevenson's homestead of Vailima, the Road of the Loving Hearts, which was extended to his gravesite after his death to acknowledge the kindness and loyalty that had been shown to them by their friend, Tusitala. Stevenson died only four years after arriving in Samoa and building his famous home. It is said that it took 40 of the strongest Samoan warriors to carry his casket and cement up the mountain to his final burial site at the summit of Mount Vaea. At the outbreak of war, Samoa was moderately and strategically important to Germany because a radio transmitter located in the hills above Apia was capable of sending long-range Moor signals not only to Berlin, but to 90 warships in Germany's naval fleet. Britain didn't like this. And eventually, when the U.S. joined the war, America didn't like that advantage either. 
Britain and the U.S. use Samoa as an essential link in the chain of communications between the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand, and again in a sea land that ran through the Fijian Islands. The loss of the islands would have effectively cut off communications between the west coast of the U.S. and Australia. By taking Samoa by force, the U.S. protected their own trade routes and safeguarded communication links to the south. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, the naval commandant assumed direct control of the island nation of Samoa. In 1942, Tutuila Samoa became the largest jungle training center in the South Pacific, with 5,600 officers and enlisted men, along with heavy artillery, and also recruited 350 of the indigenous tribesmen. There was no diplomacy used in taking the island of Samoa. There was no convincing request for auxiliary participation from the royal family, just aggressive and forced confiscation of life. In 1865, the U.S. abolished slavery. In 1889, 24 years after the abolition of slavery, the U.S. confiscated the Samoan Islands from the Royal Ali'is and put the nation into submissive captivity until the 1900s. In 1865, the U.S. abolished slavery. In 1889, 24 years after the abolition of slavery, the U.S. confiscated the Samoan Islands from the Royal Ali'is and put the nation into submissive captivity until the 1900s when they were formally made into territorial islands. American Samoa is one of the most marginalized territories as they do not possess many of the already limited rights of the other territories. In addition to being an unincorporated territory like all the others, they are an unorganized territory as well. This means that they have no congressionally implemented system of government and do not receive full citizenship upon birth. Inhabitants of American Samoa are regarded as nationals, meaning that to acquire citizenship, they will first need to follow a similar process to that of someone trying to immigrate to the United States. The process will include tests in English, U.S. history, and civics, as well as upwards of $700 in fee. That's an old estimate. You have all these people that are loudly protesting immigration and saying that they need to go through the process. I know personally that the process doesn't cost $700. It costs over $12,000 and takes years, literally years, even if you have a sponsor, even if you were born in American Samoa, a national you will pay over $12,000 to legally live in America, and it will take a minimum of five to 10 years to get papered. Yes, all you conservatives, just like in Europe in Nazi days, social security cards, driver's license, ID cards, all considered government papers. American Samoans pay taxes. They pay federal taxes, they pay local taxes, they pay sales taxes, but they cannot vote and they do not have representation. 
If the obstacles made to restrict the rights of the American Samoas don't sound eerily similar to literacy tests and poll taxes, then please continue on. Arguably one of the most patriotic populations, it is evident that one of the few American rights bestowed upon American Samoa is enthusiastically used. American Samoa has historically had extremely high military participation rates. Well, we are a tribal nation of warriors. Even achieving the number one recruitment office in 2014. On top of this, the small island is home to six military bases on an island where people are not even officially considered American citizens, we see the highest military participation rates as well as the largest donation of land to military bases proportionately. Yeah, my family didn't donate our land. It was taken by force. In looking at the history of this great saga of oppression, we find ourselves with the same Supreme Court that exemplified racism in America. In the early 20th century, shortly after acquiring American Samoa in 1900, the Supreme Court ruled that U.S. territories did not have the right to vote. This would be the same Supreme Court that made the famous ruling in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, which coined the term separate but equal in Jim Crow justice. Now, let me share another story from history with you. The year is 1773. The British Parliament creates a tax on tea in the North America colonies, commonly referred to as the tea tax. In protest of the taxation by the government, without adequate colonial representation in Parliament, a group of Massachusetts colonists throw a shipment of tea into Boston Harbor. Ten years later, on the same principles from that night, an independent nation stood victorious over its oppressors and began to work on what would be a government meant to represent every single person living under its jurisdiction. Colonists, much like inhabitants of territories, were demanding fair and equal treatment, something that American Indians and indigenous Polynesians have never seen. Recently, American Samoas have sued the U.S. government over citizenship, and other Samoans have opposed it because under the U.S. Constitution, our culture, land rights, and traditions as indigenous people would be taken away. And who would own all the tidal lands that take up 90% of the islands? The lands that belong to the rulers of the land, the indigenous governors that have taken care of the lands and the people for thousands of years. Where are the American Indians and who got their land? So what did it take to be Samoan before 1889, before the conference in Berlin? I am a Samoan citizen. Birthright nationality applies to, quote, persons born abroad to at least one parent or grandparent who was a native-born Samoan national, end quote. My grandfather was Lua Manuvai Taolapapa Tupo, born in the village of Alao, Tutuila, American Samoa. And my grandmother, Lemao Lalo Malava Fonotimuana, 
was born in Falilima, Savai, Western Samoa. My grandparents raised me. My grandmother called me her youngest daughter. My father was born in Laie, Oahu, Hawaii, before it officially became a state of the U.S. When he was born, it was before Hawaii was made a state in 1959. When my father was born, it was still just a territory, but it had been a sovereign constitutional monarchy until it became a state by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I was born in the United States, so I'm a birthright citizen of the U.S., but because of the laws when I was born, I am also a citizen of Western Samoa. I went to school there. My father holds titles and land titles there. Did you know that Hawaii didn't become a state in the year it was proposed because its statehood was deferred because of racial attitudes and party politics in the mainland until a compromise linked Hawaii status to Alaska's? So I guess just having Polynesians in a boat wasn't enough. They had to displace the Inuit Indians as well. Side note to history, and this is according to the U.S. State Department archives. Samuel Dole, yep, Dole Pineapples, was an American merchant who wanted a trade reciprocity treaty to go through. When Queen Lilio Kalani moved to make her stand stronger against these store clerks, he deposed her in a coup. President Benjamin Harrison encouraged the takeover and coup and sent the U.S. Navy to surround the royal palace in order to kidnap the queen. This was done without the Congress's approval. It was an act of war. President Grover Cleveland, the new president of the U.S., tried to restore the queen to her throne and power, but four years later, a new president, William McKinley, finished the illegal land grab and destroyed the queen. It took years of fighting over sugar to finally take Hawaii. And yes, that was what the land grab was all about sugar. From 1875 to 1959, the U.S. was so hooked on sugar that for 84 years, it decided to torture Polynesians for something our healers had told us was kapu and used only in times of famine. And after looking at all the science today, I don't think it was worth it. In Samoa, we know the reason why it was taken was for military strategy as far as the Germans, Brits, and Americans. But in the Conference of Berlin, it wasn't just the military. The military was the brawn, but the brains behind the takeover was the merchants who were only interested in the resources they could exploit, even if it meant killing off the natives. In Hawaii, it wasn't the resources that drove the killing machine to enslave the natives. During the 84 years of conflict in Hawaii, Hawaii had become the top sugar producer in the world. It didn't used to be. Sugarcane was not a bumper crop, but an avoided grass. The rise of sugarcane planting was a political as well as an ecological process by the merchants that had invaded. The merchants wrestled control of the land from the Kanaka, the native Hawaiians, and thus opened the way for the absorption of Hawaii into the American empire. People like Dole understood that the only way to make more money was to become a political power, and it worked. 
They're called sugarcane plantations. See any connections here? They were called plantations because they were settlement institutions, which accommodates and settles people of diverse backgrounds on the land. So the domestication of cane sugar can be traced to Polynesia and New Guinea about 350 BC. It was very labor intensive, so it remained a very exotic spice, medicinal glaze or sweetener for the gods. Now one of the most intriguing side crops of sugar that was produced in the Caribbean out of sugarcane was rum. Before the Caribbean was taken over, those Indians didn't produce rum. As a matter of fact, sugarcane wasn't even on the island. But after the stalks were transplanted from, they think, India by Christopher Columbus, it grew so well. The native Indians were put into settlements and worked to death making sugar. Those merchants were so bent on producing sugar that all of those countless native tribesmen died and many tribes worked to extinction. Then the merchants enslaved 11 million, 11 million African slaves to work in the cane fields. Those are just the ones that survived the trip over, killing a lot of them too in the production of sugar, so much so that the Victorian women at one time protested and boycotted sugar because of the death count. Native Hawaiians or the Kanaka had never made rum either, but they were still forced to grow and harvest the base product for the merchants. And all those missionaries that first opposed the harvest of sugar and the production of rum changed their position towards sugar and by the mid-19th century embraced using Native Hawaiians as laborers. As a matter of fact, men of faith, Jesuit priests, were the first to plant the white gold near Barone Street in New Orleans in 1751. Enslaving people to produce sugar was a common thing, so common that the New York General Assembly in 1730 issued a consolidated slave code, making it unlawful for above three slaves to meet on their own and authorizing each town to employ a common whipper for their slaves because of the sugar warehouses and workhouses within the districts. In the mills, it wasn't uncommon to have children work alongside adults. The work included boiling hot kettles, open furnaces, and grinding rollers. So you can guess how many children were killed or maimed in this type of work. But the merchants like Dole didn't care about death or accident because it slowed the process for making money. Again, the socially dead, their rights to participate in political decision-making and other social activities are fewer than those enjoyed by their owners. The product of slave labor can be claimed by someone else, like land resources and the production of agriculture like sugarcane or pineapple. And again, something that Polynesians and American Indians have a hard time with. Slavery is outside the human mindset. A slave as an enemy that an economy is based on has a future of turmoil, distrust, and destruction on both sides because the battle hasn't finished. The injustices that exist are embedded within the blood of those that are silenced or enslaved. 
There were four main causes to the biggest war fought on American soil known as the Civil War. Economic interests, cultural values, the power of the federal government to control areas, and finally, slavery in American society. All of these issues still exist today. I see videos on YouTube of the Ali's, the Kanaka, and the Ainga meeting all the time at grave sites or memorials upset about the lack of ho'oponopono given to them. They are upset. I see the TV news stories in Samoa about the overreach and lack of fundamentals in negotiations. The U.S. once apologized to the Hawaiian people for destroying their nation, killing their king, and imprisoning the queen, but never once apologized for doing the illegal land grab. Same with Samoa, and because there was great mana, but no ho'oponopono, no reconciliation for the Polynesian people. The war drum beats on. Keep listening for more episodes of The War Drums of Makua, The Season of Battle. Brought to you by SouthPackHealth.com. The wisdom of the past is the health of the future. SavageMusicStudios.com and Life Extend Unlimited. The taste you know, the results you prefer.